our, uh, our flood events in Europe is going to increase and has already increased in some regions. Uh, so this is really, flood forecasting is a topic that's really important and that's going to be more and more important in the future. Welcome to another acclimatised conversation on climate change adaptation, the show that picks the brains of some of the leading thinkers about climate change risk and resilience. I'm Lydia and today I'm speaking to Dr Louise Arnold to learn all about her work on flood prediction. Understanding and communicating flood risk is becoming increasingly important as climate change leads to more regular and intense flooding events. Whilst understanding the risk is helpful for both decision makers and those who live in areas with a high probability of being flooded, just knowing there is a risk does not necessarily translate into people being prepared for a specific flooding event. Even communities that have already experienced frequent flooding could benefit from taking action to reduce losses before a flood comes. Therefore, enhancing flood prediction methods, helping to describe where and when flooding can be expected, as well as the scale of it, can help communities adapt and become more resilient to climate change. And this is the area that our guest today, Dr Louise Arnold, works in. Hi Louise, thank you so much for joining us today um, and to tell us more about your work. Um, Yeah, tell us about what it is you do. Uh, Yeah, thanks for having me on this podcast. Um, So I'm currently a part-time scientist at the European Centre for Medium Range Weather Forecasts, so that's ECMWF in short. Uh, And I work there on flood forecast product design. So I just finished my PhD at the University of Reading uh, in the Geography and Environmental Science Department. And uh, during my PhD, I was looking at improving the seasonal forecasting of flood events in Europe. And I also looked more specifically at the Thames River Basin uh, in the UK for one of my case studies. And yeah, on the side, I'm also a a keen artist and I love using artwork that I make to explain the science I do, but also to collaborate with people uh, on scientific topics. Yeah, that's great. And I've seen some of your artwork, Louise, and it's fantastic for translating the science. So I wanted to ask you, like, what exactly is flood forecasting and why is it so important? What do you do? (laughs) So uh, flood forecasts are prediction of flood events. And we make those using uh, supercomputers and that run on these computers. So they're mathematical models of what happens in the sky and on the ground. Um, and they basically represent the future weather and the movement of water over and in the ground, kind of like the water cycle. Um, and these are produced using supercomputers. In my case, I use the ones produced uh, by ECMWF, but there are many supercomputers around the world. So I was looking at seasonal timescales for my PhD because knowing what would happen months in advance would 
give you all this extra time to potentially prepare for an event. Great. So how is flood forecasting any different from just forecasting when there's going to be lots of rain? Surely it's sort of the same. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, not quite. I mean, there is so much data that we have to take into account when we make these forecasts. Um, So, okay, let's take a day when it starts to rain. So you would have Uh, measurements of the rainfall, but you would also have measurements of your temperature, of how much water is being evaporated from the land. So we get these from different sources of data. And then we also have information uh, on, well, what the land cover is like, if there is any infrastructure on the ground, like let's say reservoirs, or if it's a city versus a forest. We also know whether it's uh, flat land or if there is any mountains there. So we have all this knowledge about what's currently happening. So if it's raining or not and what the land looks like, basically. And then we basically put all this information into the models that we run on these supercomputers. Uh, And then we run the models to be able to get a flood forecast at the end of the day. That's great. So it's like you don't just measure how much rain there is, but you measure how wet the land is already and where the puddles are going to form. Is that kind of a crude way of understanding it? Yeah, no, that's, that's I mean, that's quite accurate, actually. Uh, so we have all, all this information about uh, what's currently happening in the atmosphere, but also what's happening in the ground. So how much groundwater we have, uh, how wet the soil is and how much water we already have in our rivers. So how do you actually get all of that data? I presume it's not you going out there in your wellies and digging holes in the ground to see how wet the mud is. Like, How do you get that data? Sometimes I actually wish I was the one in my wellies taking those measurements because <laughs> it, it has a nice uh, aspect. Um, but yeah, no, so we get these informations from lots of different sources. I mean, it can be from people in their wellies going to take measurements in the fields, uh, which I have done in the past, but it can also be from, uh, well, information at specific locations, like from weather stations or gauges that measure the level of water in the river. Uh, but it can also be um, information from satellites, for example, that take a picture of what happens over the globe or over Europe, if you're focusing on Europe, for example. Wow, that is a lot of data. But I still kind of don't understand how you would then translate that into a climate model. Like, how do you match the data that you've got with where you've got it from and then make predictions from that. Yeah, that's actually a really important and also tricky part. Um, So the models that we run that represent the water cycles and that produce our flood forecast at the end of the day, they're gridded. So they're basically like pixelated images of what happens in reality. Um, And then we collect all of these different information or observations that we have from satellites, from weather stations, from river gauges, and then basically we put them all together to have a really good 
understanding of what happens in reality. And we make sure that they match the pixelated uh, image that we have of the model. So in each little pixel, you would have an observation of all these different components that go into our model. Right. So in my head, then, it's maybe a little bit like playing battleships. <laughs> you've got this grid and you've got the box B12. And then when you look at that, you've got all of the information about like the wetness and the land slope for that box. Okay, so that makes more sense. So how how big are those boxes? Are they like down to a house level or are they as big as a country? So that really depends uh, on the model you're using. Uh, for my PhD, I've used models that are run at TCMWF for the European Flood Awareness System. And these have uh, pixels of five by five kilometers in size uh, because they run what happens for all over Europe. Wow. So if we, we could make them smaller, smaller, uh, smaller pixels, but then it would require a lot and lot of computer power. Yeah. So how long does it take you to run a model? It really depends on what you want to run from it. Uh, so if you would want to run one of these seasonal forecasts that I was using, so looking at what happens months in advance, that would take you days. Um, so usually it takes eight days to actually run the model and then process it into something that decision makers can understand. So that makes sense. And so you can predict the floods in this way. But we know when floods happen that it's not just um, sort of how the rain falls and runs across the land. Like there can be other things like was that river dredged or um, were these other decisions made about um, maintaining floodplains and things. Do you look at that sort of information as well? So me, myself, and well, the model that I've used uh, looks at this, but not all the components of it. So it takes into account, for example, uh, very large reservoirs in Europe. Uh, it knows whether a pixel will be forest versus city, things like that. But then knowing exactly what happens beyond this five by five kilometer uh, pixel, is very, well, we can take this into account with this model. So basically we produce a flood forecast that then decision makers will use, and then they add this added knowledge from uh, what is happening at the smaller scales on the ground to exactly know what the impact will be of the flood forecast we produce. That's great. So you said in your introduction that the work that you were doing then was to help improve this flood forecasting. What was it you were doing then to make this better? Uh, so I was looking at the scientific aspects of things, uh, as well as a bit of the decision making. Um, so basically, the scientific side of it was trying to see what the limitations of the models currently are, at least the one I was using and for producing seasonal forecasts. Uh, so there can be limitations from different components. Uh, so it can be limitations in the data that we have about what's happening on the ground before we start the model, 
or limitations about uh, limitations of the weather forecast that we use, for example. So, okay, great. So talking about improving limitations, like what, what does that mean? What, what are the limitations? What, what would the perfect data look like? Well, the perfect data uh, is, I'm not sure it's achievable at least yet because we need so much equipment and so much computing power that we currently don't have, unfortunately. Um, so it would mean, for example, uh, everyone having instruments in their and a computer in, the, in their back garden that measures how much water there is in their ground and how much water is falling in their garden. That would give us, well, close to perfect uh, data, I would say. <laughs> That's quite an intrusion, so I can see that. Yeah, okay, so obviously we're never going to get the absolute perfect data that we need. So, okay, I understand more now what you mean by limitations. <laughs> so how do you, you know, make best use of the stuff that you've got? How do we know that the limited data you've got is actually accurate and, and useful for us? Yeah, so, I mean, we know that we have limitations in the data that we use, for example, as we just discussed. Uh, we know that there are trade-offs in the models we use as well, because if we run, wanted to run uh, very high resolution, so very tiny pixels uh, for, forecast or model, then we would have to use a lot of computing power. So there are all these trade-offs, and is it actually that useful to run this higher resolution model for what we want to get? So all these trade-offs we have to take into account. And then there is also chaos in nature. Uh, basically, it's creating inaccuracies in the forecasts that increase with time. Basically, just like a, a snowball that uh, grows as it rolls down a hill. Or if you have a ship radar and you start with a slightly lower <laughs> number and then at the end of the mm. day, you find yourself in Europe instead of being in America. I don't know. Uh, so it's very important that we make sure that these, the starting knowledge, so that our models are as good as we can get them, the observations are as good as we can get them, to then knowing that there are trade-offs in what we can actually physically run uh, and then getting this forecast. And one way that uh, is being used now for a few decades to run better forecasts that take into account these trade-offs and um, limitations in the data we have is instead of running a single forecast, we basically modify slightly the inputs we have to our models because we know these inputs are not perfect. And then we get a range of different forecast scenarios, basically. It's just like running an equation with slightly different numbers at the start to double check that the same numbers give you the same answer, but also that tiny different numbers might give you a slightly different answer. Uh, okay, so if there's a, a range of numbers that we put in at the beginning of our sort of mathematical calculation, and then we run that calculation to see what the answer is, um, we want to know how widely different those answers are that we get. And so whether a small number change at the beginning results in a small or massive change at the end, is that right? Yeah, exactly. 
Okay. And so what do we call that range of answers? So we call this type of forecast probabilistic forecast. Probabilistic forecast. Okay. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> so probabilistic forecast is ex exactly what uh, you and I described as running instead of a single, which we call deterministic forecasts of what will happen. We run a range of what might happen. And for flood forecasting, we usually do that by taking different weather forecast scenarios, which were run by modifying slightly their inputs. And then we put those different weather forecast scenarios into the flood model and we run it. And then it gives us a different number of uh, flood forecast scenarios. Great. So it sounds as if then for policymakers, you're able to give them not just sort of like one figure and how certain you are that it will hit it, but you're able to give them a range of things, like a likelihood, is that right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's exactly the term. We give them a probability or a likelihood of a certain uh, event happening. So it can be, for example, just passing this uh, threshold that's important for this place in the world. And then we give them the likelihoods that it's actually going to happen. And then based on this, they can combine it with their information on the impacts that this will have on the ground. So if they know how severe this threshold uh, is or if, if of this type of event is, and they combine it with their knowledge of the infrastructure on the ground, the communities on the ground, uh, other more local information that they only have, then they can have a better understanding of the risk. So the work that you're doing then for policymakers, it really is quite important, isn't it? It feeds into how they make decisions then about how they respond to risk. Yeah, exactly. It's almost, I mean, it's one of the many sources that uh, they use. So combining this information that we give them, uh, so like the weather forecast, the flood forecast, and then they combine it with all the local knowledge and expertise that they have. It's really vital for them to, at the end of the day, make a decision of uh, putting up a flood barrier or not. Great. So the improvements that you've done in flood prediction, how does that change the things that policymakers do? Or like, will they not notice a big difference? <laughs> I mean, I hope they'll notice a difference. Um, so by finding how we can improve these forecasts, um, hopefully, so during my thesis, I looked at how we can improve these forecasts. And now it, we actually have to take this information into account to actually improve the forecasts. Uh, so this is a step that's not yet done. but work on the models and on the forecast is done all the time. Uh, so it is done in an indirect way as well. And then at the end of the day, you get a slightly better forecast because someone improved the representation of this part of the water cycle in the model or something like this. So it improves slightly your forecast. And then the job that I'm doing uh, currently for ECMWF, so uh, product designer, is also helping because it's how we communicate then that forecast into something that's actionable for the decision maker on the ground. So designing it so that we communicate that scientific information accurately, uh, 
but also in a way that's understandable and actionable for them on the ground. Great, that's really interesting. So what sorts of things do you find influence the way in which you design these things for policymakers? Um, So there are lots of different things that actually impact the way uh, decision makers understand and use the forecasts. So it can be very basic from uh, how good a plot looks, for example, if you have a nicer plot that looks more understandable at first sight, then you'll more likely look at it further to make a decision based on it. Uh, So it's also about um, how well you represent the forecast, for example, because as I said, we give a range of possible different scenarios. So it's how you represent these different scenarios graphically so that decision makers understand that it's not only one forecast, but a range of different possibilities, basically. Uh, It's also about having the relevant thresholds on there for the decision makers. So if you have a threshold that, uh, you know, might be uh, passed by the forecasts, then it's relevant, it's really good to have it on the plots because then forecasts will be able to relate the science that they see on the plots to what they know might happen on the ground. So it's really combining all these different perspectives from how good the science is and how we want to pass that on to decision makers, but also seeing the perspective of the decision maker and what they would want to see on that plot. Wow, that's really cool that you're able to really tailor that scientific information for them. And so some of the other stuff that you do is to do your artwork. That seems quite different from doing your science. How do you bring those two together? Yeah, it's quite different uh, because with these forecasts, you can't be too abstract. (laughs) I mean, you have to put some accurate scientific content, so you can't be too abstract when you communicate it to the decision maker. Uh, With my arts, this is something that I can do, so I can be more abstract just to basically communicate the essence uh, of the science I do to a range of audiences, uh, not only to decision makers, but to a person who would have no a priori at all about what the field is about. Uh, And then trying to bring basically scientists and society together to tackle this challenge of flood forecasting, which is really important to society and to science. That's really, really cool that you would use the artwork in that way to sort of explain flood risk and help people get their heads around it. What what do you find is the kind of most common question that you get from people who look at your artwork? Um, so, I mean, I've recently uh, done my first science and art exhibition, uh, which was exhibited at the Museum of English Rural Life in Reading. And that's when I got some quite interesting comments and questions. Uh, So that was a piece that really communicated my PhD topic. So flood forecasting and how good we can uh, basically forecast what will happen in uh, in several months. And well, basically, it was an interesting approach to um, running to running a flood forecast which has information about probabilities uh, 
so to represent these different probabilities and then the chaos that we have in the atmosphere, I used a jackpot machine or a fruit machine. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> and then I found that people actually related to it quite well. And then they could, it, yeah, it gave them a, a new perspective on uh, what probabilities are. And scientists also quite liked it, actually. <laughs> At first, they were a bit puzzled, but they also liked it in the end. Um, and then one, one nice comment that I got was someone who was there in the installation. So the installation took, uh, let's say, two minutes to run. And this person wanted to produce their own forecast using this jackpot machine I put in the center of the room. And so they pressed it, and then they had to wait two minutes again. Uh, and then they were like, oh, but I had to wait all this time. And then they realized, oh, but that's the actual amount of time you have to wait when you produce a forecast in real life. There is a certain amount of time you have to wait while all the observation data is being collected, processed, while the model is run, uh, all these different things. <laughs> so who'd have thought like flood risk prediction is like a fruit jackpot machine and the scientists get better at predicting whether you're going to get three cherries or two lemons and a banana <laughs> and you just have to wait five minutes for it. <laughs> Great. I think we get it now. <laughs> well, Louise, thank you so much for explaining like flood forecasting, how you do it, how it's getting better and how we can use it. So obviously with climate change, flood forecasting is going to be super useful for how we understand how climate change affects us. What would be your sort of one-liner for members of the public and policymakers for how knowing more about flooding prediction, how that can help us with our adaptation, decision-making, and how that can help us be more resilient? Um, yeah, I mean, as you say, uh, climate change is a hot topic and... We know that there is research that shows that with climate change, the amounts, so the frequency and also um, the magnitudes of our uh, of flood events in Europe is going to increase and has already increased in some regions. Uh, so this is really, flood forecasting is a topic that's really important and that's going to be more and more important in the future. Um, so if we can all work together to anticipate floods today and build together resilience to anticipate uh, floods that will happen in the future, uh, that's the way forward, really. Dr. Louise Arnold, thank you so much for speaking to us today and uh, good luck in the rest of your work. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. <laughs> listening and many thanks again to Louise for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks also to the band Broke for Free who provide our title music. For more conversations on climate change adaptation or to access world-leading advice and guidance on climate risk management, 
visit our website www.acclimatise.uk.com. You can also listen to many more episodes by subscribing to SoundCloud, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's all from me, so speak to you next time. <laughs>